Matt's Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the place to be this November for college football, the NFL, and World Cup action. Walk on over to Walters for Team USA's World Cup opening match against Wales at 2 p.m. on Monday, November 21st. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Real Muto runs. Castellanos. Is it playable? Tucker coming in. Kyle Tucker's going to get there. Make the catch! The Houston Astros are the 2022 World Series champions. And look where they all went in the dugout. The players on the field celebrating in the dugout. There's one guy who's getting all the hugs. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, November 8th, 2022, Election Day 2022. Vote Nats Chat, whatever you do, along with Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast, and we are here with you. It is nice to be here with you for the first of our occasional off-season episodes during this Nationals 2022-2023 off-season. Ahead on the show, the latest on the sale of the Nats what we are expecting from the Nats in free agency, some lessons for the Nats from the just-concluded 2022 MLB postseason. But I feel like we need to first acknowledge what happened now nearly a month ago, the first-ever Nats chat podcast party. This happened on Friday night, October 14th at Walters. We had no idea what to expect, and we ended up with more people than are usually at a Miami Marlins home game, or at least it felt that way. So much so, Mark, that you and I basically (laughs) did not speak until the end of the night. Now, the underlying tension between the two of us did have something to do with that, but so too did the great turnout that we had at the first ever Nats Chat podcast party. Yeah, well, I think those who showed up got to see firsthand how much we despise each other. The fact that we stayed on opposite sides of the room essentially all night. No, it was funny. We both realized at the end of the night, like, man, we haven't had a chance to actually catch up with each other (laughs) because we've been so busy talking to our listeners, which was great. It really was such a fun time and a great chance to put some names and faces to the people that we know are out there that listen to us and hear their thoughts on what's going on with the team and hear their thoughts on the podcast and share our thoughts with them as well. It, it was a great event. I hope we can do more of these and I hope we can get even bigger turnout next time. Thank you to Walters for hosting it. It really was a great venue for it. We were watching some of the playoff games as it was all going on and it was a lot of fun and it humanizes it. You know, we sit here during the season every night and talk into our microphones and looking at each other 
over Zoom, but you don't really know. We see numbers. We don't really know who's out there to actually now see the faces and the people from all over the world, literally, because we had our guy from Korea who was in town to actually meet us in person. It's really cool just to now actually see the faces of the people out there who make this podcast possible. Yeah, no question. A lot of good, smart people, a lot of good conversation. Uh, We met our guy, Rich, from South Korea, which was just outstanding. I mean, he made quite the trip to come see us. I think he was in the States for other reasons, too, but we'll go ahead and uh, pretend like he was here just for us. But no, it was awesome. So thank you to everyone who came out and uh, much appreciated everyone for coming out and for listening to the podcast. So yeah, a lot of ground that we want to cover here on this episode. And, you know, I guess we're still at a point at which, hey, nothing matters more than the sale of the Nationals and where exactly we are with that. As you may recall, Barry's Verluga of the Washington Post back in July during the All-Star break tweeted that the general expectation was that the sale of the Nats would happen by November or sometime in November. Well, we now are in November uh, and there's a lot to be thinking about here. So we did have the report from The Athletic in October, October 20th, that the Ted Leonsis group was emerging as the frontrunner in the Nationals' ownership sale. We had a report from the Washington Post within the last few weeks that a hammering out of the Masson dispute via MOB might be a part of working out who ends up buying the Nats. And now we also have the NFL team of Washington, D.C. up for sale in the Washington Commanders. And uh, I guess let's approach it from this way because that is new and that is out there so much right now. Do you think the Commanders being up for sale impacts the Nationals being up for sale or not so much? I think in some ways it could because there could be some crossover here. We're still finding out names, but you are seeing at least a handful of familiar names there that we thought were interested in the Nationals that may be interested in the Commanders. And I don't know. The idea of somebody actually buying both teams (laughs) seems pretty far-fetched to me, especially if it's somebody like Ted Leonsis who already owns the other two major professional teams in town. That's a lot. I'm not sure he has the ability to pull that off or that the respective leagues want that to happen to that extent. So I don't think the timing of it helps the Nationals. I'll put it that way. Obviously, the Nationals process is much farther along. It started back in the spring, whereas the commanders, it sounds like it's really just out of the blue here in the last week or two. So that one's going to take longer. But if you are somebody who's in the market for owning a sports team in Washington, D.C., and you were in on the Nationals, and all of a sudden an NFL team is available, that's an awfully intriguing thing. And I just can't help but think that that's going to draw more attention and potentially drag this all out. So I don't think it's necessarily a good thing for the Nationals. Now, that said, the sense I've gotten here in the last few months is as much as they hoped to have this thing done this fall or this winter, that's looking less likely by the day. I mean, look, we're already in November. I think we would have a sense if there was real momentum towards something. Not to say that it can't happen, but there are still a lot of hurdles to overcome. You mentioned the Masson deal. You know, I work for Masson. I always have to be careful what I say about this, but that is a huge sticking point, obviously. And then secondly, I think we have to acknowledge here that Mark Lerner and his family by all counts, have set a dollar value what they think their franchise is worth and what it should be sold for. And I think there's some concern here that people out there are not willing to meet that price. And we've seen historically how the Lerner family operates. If they don't get what they want, they will wait it out. And so I think the farther this goes along, the less likely it seems that this is going to happen and that they are more willing to wait this out and hope that they can get that number up to where they want it to be while the other issues are sorted out as well. 
It's so crazy on so many levels. First of all, the fact that two of the big four in Washington, D.C. area sports are up for sale at the same time. I mean, it is rare enough that one team is up for sale, that two teams are up for sale at the same time. I mean, I don't know, this may be unprecedented, like in terms of a major market, two of the big four teams being up for sale at once. I think it's also funny that the Commanders might end up being sold before the Nationals end up being sold. We learned of the Nats being up for sale back in April. We're still not sure exactly when the process started. The Commanders, we just learned of recently. And if you go by what Fox Sports' Jay Glazer reported on Sunday, the hope from the NFL is that the Commander sale will be wrapped up by the NFL League meeting this coming March. I mean, there's no guarantee that the Nats are sold by March. So that's crazy to me that the Commander sale could have started and ended before the national sale ends up being wrapped up. The money thing is fascinating too. You know, you're never quite sure what to make of these franchise valuations, but you know, Forbes does, I think, the best job of trying to figure this stuff out. Forbes in March of this year valued the Nats as being worth $2 billion. Forbes in August valued the commander is at being $5.6 billion. And the word is that Dan Snyder wants $7 billion for the commanders. And as competitive as the bidding for that team may be, he may get that. He might get more than that. We just don't know. But it's a different kind of financial universe when you're talking about an NFL team versus an MLB team. And I think, you know, the aforementioned Masson dispute does hurt the value of the Nats, you know, especially if you buy the team and you got to figure that whole situation out. So I think that's a part of everything as well. But yeah, you know, we're not hearing much about the Nats sale. We never really have heard much about the Nats sale. As you've discussed, that's kind of how the learners want it to be. And so I've always kind of felt like, you know, we might just wake up one day and there's a report out there that a sale has been agreed on. You know, like you just don't know with how things are going. I think it's notable that this group of uh, Ted Leonsis and David Rubenstein had that report in The Athletic that, uh, that that was the front runner. But again, what does that mean, front runner? Like, I don't know. Was that leaked by the camp of Leonsis and Rubenstein? Was that, in fact, uh, the way things are? Is it the way things were? Have things changed? A lot of stuff we don't know still. Yeah, I'm always leery of that word front runner, especially when it comes to something like this, that it can mean everything or it can mean nothing. And you have to think about, well, who's using that word? Who's putting that out there? I <laughs> look, go way back when I, there was a sense back in 2005, 2006 that a different group that was led by uh, Jeffrey Zients, I believe, was the longstanding frontrunner to purchase the Nationals from MLB. We knew the Learners were one of the other groups involved. And then all of a sudden, it was the Learners who brought on Stan Kasten who got the team. So I think that term is used for leverage in a lot of ways. I don't know that it means a whole lot. That's not to say that I don't think Leonsis could end up getting the team. I do think that's possible. But I think we talked about this at the end of the season. You know, you mentioned Mass, and it is such a sticking point. And it's even more so when you're talking about Ted Leonsis, who owns a competing local regional sports network. And I know for a lot of fans, they will look at him and say, that's the way out. That's the solution to all these troubles. I would argue that it actually makes it more complicated and that the idea of the Nationals regaining their own TV rights somehow is extremely complicated and highly unlikely at this point. I think the best that they can hope to do is to get some more clarity about how much money they will receive from Masson for their TV rights on an annual basis. That's the really what the argument the court 
case has been about for over a decade now. It's about the money. I don't think there's a reasonable path here for them to try to actually secure the rights away from them. It's pretty much written in the stone that the Orioles will control a majority of their TV rights. So all of that complicates it. I think that's among the reasons why this thing is dragging on. And as we said, the learners are going to want whatever they want. And if they don't get it, I think they are the kind of people who are willing to wait this out. It is so typical of what has happened with the Nationals in recent years that the sale of the team now is being crowded in on by the sale of another team in the area. It feels like the Nats can never have the spotlight where it needs to be for them, right? Like they're being sold. That's a big deal. The attention should be on them. The focus should be on them. And then out of nowhere now comes this commander's thing. I'm going to throw this into the mix too. And this has been out there. I don't buy it, but let's go ahead and have a little bit of fun here on this first offseason installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Some of you listening may know this, others may not. In 1999, among the people who were interested in buying the Redskins was Ted Lerner. It is still kind of out of the blue that the Learners are selling the Nationals. Now, you know, we've talked about potential reasons for why, and one may be a lack of cash flow given the COVID shutdowns and what happened with real estate in this area. Do you think there is any possibility that the learners have any designs on being part of a group going after the commanders, that the old switcheroo may be being attempted to be executed here by the learners? I mean, that would be quite the uh, contortion act by them (laughs) to pull that off, especially when as far as we know, there was no indication prior then to then a couple of weeks ago that that team was even up for sale. So I like your conspiracy theory there, but I have a hard time believing that other than the potential for them saying, hey, this is suddenly available to us. We know various people who could be involved in this. Let's try to latch on and be a minority partner. Kind of like, you know, again, Mark Lerner is a minority partner of Ted Leonsis Monumental Sports. And so he owns a small stake in the Wizards and the Capitol. So maybe something along those lines, but they are not in a position to take the lead at all or come close to taking the lead or a very prominent role in this. If they did, then what we've been hearing from them for the last nine months is a sham (laughs) because they're not selling the Nationals because they're just kind of had enough owning a baseball team. They're doing it because financially they took a huge hit during the pandemic in the wake of the World Series, having no honeymoon for that, and their commercial real estate business being in severe trouble also as a result of the pandemic. So I don't think they all of a sudden are in a position to pony up several billion dollars to help buy the football team. That would be quite the switcheroo, though. That would be quite the switcheroo. There's also this dynamic, too, and this now is widely known. This was known behind the scenes for years. Dan Snyder and the learners hate each other. So Don't you think the learners would love to stick it told Danny boy by taking his team from him? Of course, Danny would have to agree to the sale. Anyway, just something to think about. Let me make one other point here about comparing the two. You say about how the commander's sale could go down first. That's true. And I, I agree. I think there's a very good chance that that could happen based on what we know at this point. Let's also remember the circumstances around these two being teams being sold are vastly different. One is kind of being forced into it from the rest of the league and everything that's happened with them and with him, the other has decided to do this and can maybe afford to wait it out and isn't necessarily under the same kind of pressure to get this done. So I think that's a very distinct difference in what's going down with these two franchises. Oh, yeah. And both said at one point that they would never sell the team. 
Mark Lerner, in uh, June 2018, upon becoming Nats managing principal owner, said to the Washington Post, quote, we will never sell the Nationals, end quote. Danny has insisted for years that he would not sell the Redskins slash Washington football team slash commanders. And uh, here we are, both teams up for sale right now as uh, we speak here in November 2022. Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Manessis? Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need. More money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S. He specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC. Like Joey Menezes' big breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Real Muto. Bouncing ball to third. Picked by Bregman. Three across in time. The Astros have a World Series no-hitter. Well, the World Series ended on Saturday night. That means that the MLB offseason 
has begun. And lo and behold, on Sunday, we actually have the Nationals announcing multiple transactions slash decisions. The Nats announced that they have agreed to terms with free agent reliever Sean Doolittle on a minor league contract with an invitation to 2023 Major League Spring Training. And the Nats on Sunday announced, to no one's surprise, that they have declined the 2023 mutual option on designated hitter Nelson Cruz. Again, it is bizarre. You have this extreme ownership uncertainty and the offseason is beginning here. I mean, has Mike Rizzo been given a budget? We don't know. Has Mike Rizzo been given orders on what to do with certain players on how to address the roster? We don't know. The Nats do have a number of free agents here. A good bit of them would appear to be unlikely to be re-signed, but that doesn't mean that they all will not be re-signed. What do you think? How is Mike Rizzo even attacking this offseason given this ownership situation? Yeah, so he told us at the end of the regular season that uh, he would be getting parameters from ownership on how to proceed and that those parameters could change depending on the state of the sale of the team. I would imagine as things stand right now, unless he knows that something's going down here pretty soon, that he is going to proceed as though the learners are still owning the team throughout the offseason. And if that's the case, I got to say, and this is where the lack of movement on the sale, I think, hurts the Nationals. I don't foresee a whole lot of money being spent this winter, a whole lot of significant moves being made. Now, there's an argument to be made that even under secure ownership status, that they wouldn't be doing a whole lot, that they're maybe not in the right position right now to try to do that given the state of the rebuild. But you'd like to think that if Rizzo saw something out there that he felt like was a worthy move that could make a big splash, that he would do it. And I go back to the winter after the 2010 season, when the Nationals had lost 90 plus games, had never come close to winning anything. And he went out and signed Jason Worth to what was at the time the largest contract in franchise history. So is there a possibility of that kind of move this winter? I have a hard time seeing that happening without a new owner in place. So I think we're looking at much more of the kind of moves we saw last winter, for better or worse one-year deals, role players, maybe some veterans you could bring in for a year, hope you flip them at the trade deadline. Although as we saw, that didn't work out with Nelson Cruz and Steve Ciszek and others. I think those are the kind of moves. A lot of minor league deals like they gave to Sean Doolittle. That's what I'm expecting at the moment. Now, things can change. It's a long offseason as we've seen. The baseball offseason can drag. And a lot of times the big moves don't come until well into December, January, even into February when spring training starts. So a lot can change. But as we get started on this, I'm not really anticipating a whole lot of significant moves from the national standpoint. Yeah, the MLB offseason is so bizarre. In every other major professional sport, day one of free agency is like, you know, New Year's Day, Christmas Day, and you have just an avalanche of moves. In MLB, Everyone takes their time. Nothing happens right away. You don't know when big moves are going to happen. And so it's this like slow plotting process. And, you know, on the one hand, it is good because it's not just like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And it's over in a few days like it is with, say, the NFL and the NBA. But on the other hand, there's like no sort of um, there's no pomp and circumstance to it. Like free agency started on Sunday on an NFL Sunday. MLB free agency started like That doesn't make a lot of sense now, does it? But, you know, that's kind of how MLB operates. So you look at who exactly is a free agent from the Nats. Uh, Well, Nelson Cruz now is. You also have uh, Steve Ciszek, Will Harris. Anyone want to re-sign him? Cesar Hernandez, Erasmo Ramirez, Joe Ross, Anibal Sanchez. So those guys are there. I mean, 
You know, look, I don't think anyone would be stunned if, say, uh, Anibal was resigned. You know that the Nats want to bring him back. I feel like that's something they very much want to do. I think Erasmo Ramirez is interesting. He had a very good season. You know, he is a reliever. We know how fickle they are. But, you know, if you're trying to bring back a bullpen that did end up being pretty good, he figures to not cost you much. So you could do that. You know, I think in some ways, it's almost fortuitous that the Nats are in the position that they're in, because if they were a contender and they were in this screwy situation in which they don't know what's going on with ownership and Mike Rizzo was handcuffed, you know, you really would be at a disadvantage because you're in this rebuild and you probably wouldn't be spending money anyway. You probably wouldn't be making aggressive moves anyway. It may be like whatever, whether I know exactly where we are with the ownership or not. It doesn't make sense for us to do much of anything right now anyway. I mean, barring the unforeseen, the Nats are going to have another rough season in 2023. And to spend money this offseason to go from, you know, 55 wins to 70 wins just doesn't make a lot of sense. No, not unless those are pieces that they actually think are going to help them win 90 games in a couple of years. And I don't think they believe that they're ready for that yet. There are so many young players that they still need to actually see who need to establish themselves. I think before they have a legitimate sense of how far they are away from winning. I know internally they want to believe things about 2024 being a year they can turn a corner. We'll see. We've talked about how many unknowns there are, how many things have to go right that we just have not seen yet on the field. So yeah, I think they're in a position right now where you don't do a lot of big gamble kind of moves, moves that are sort of a go for it thing. I think it's more calculated, you know, but- I think you can still have an effective winner if you make the right moves along these lines. I think bringing back a Rosmo Ramirez would make some sense. He's not going to cost a lot. He was really valuable to them as a swing man, jack of all trades, really did pitch well. I think giving Anibal Sanchez a minor league deal, there's no harm in that. Bring him to spring training, see what the state of things are. Maybe you have room for him, maybe you don't. I think Joe Ross, even though he's coming back from a second Tommy John surgery, they know him. He's been rehabbing with them non-guaranteed minor league deal. It's going to be you know, well into the summer before he's ready to pitch anyways. Might as well, I think, take a flyer on that. I think the Doolittle re-signing is fine. He was really good. It was only five games before he got hurt, but he was really good at that point. The procedure that he had is called an internal brace procedure. It was to avoid Tommy John surgery in much shorter time frame for recovery. He got it over the summer because he knew that would give him enough time to be healthy for spring training. He feels like he has made real strides there. He's ready to go. He's very excited that this got done now. He thought he was going to have to wait out most of the winter for teams to start showing interest. He was really pleased that the Nationals jumped in right away and did that. So I think those are the ones that we could see maybe coming back. I don't think Steve Ciszek is coming back. We'll see. He may even retire. Will Harris, boy, that was a bust of a contract. Three years, $24 million. What did they get out of him? Nothing. Cesar Hernandez was a big disappointment. I don't see him obviously coming back. So these are not flashy moves, but I think there's reason in those other cases, like I mentioned, to consider bringing them back. And I think those are the type of players they may also be looking at the rest of this winter. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you're the Nats, what you really want to try to do is if you're going to spend any money, bring in guys who potentially can be flipped. I think you're either, you're one of two things. You're a building block or you're a trade candidate. And that's the way to look at the roster for 2023. And if a player doesn't fall into one of those categories, potential building block or potential trade chip, then you really need to ask yourself, why is he here with us? You know, And I understand that not everyone is going to fit so cleanly under one of those two descriptions, but that really is what you're aiming for. You need to add a lot more to your inventory of prospects 
and you need to add prospects, young players slash potential building blocks, period. So if you can somehow add to one of those two categories with some signings this offseason, that's the way to go. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, to try to be better for this coming season, it does you no good. And I think most people understand that. Like, this is a rebuild. Mike Rizzo may not want to use that word, but this is as rebuild as rebuild gets. And, you know, it's going to take a while here to get good again. But hopefully, you know, there is a major light at the end of the tunnel. And I agree with you with one exception to that. I think it would be valid to spend a little bit of money on a starting pitcher who is not being acquired for the purpose of flipping him in July, the purpose of keeping him all year, maybe even for two years. They desperately need a reliable guy who can give you a chance to win games, eat innings, and take some pressure off all these other young guys. And then the veterans who are coming off of injuries and poor performances. You just need somebody who resembles a sure thing as a starter, not a great one, but a middle of the rotation. If there's somebody out there that doesn't cost too much, can give you that, I think that's worth spending a little bit of money on, not for the purpose of then flipping him at the deadline, but for the, actually for the purpose of keeping him to eat up innings and take the pressure off all those other starters. We saw what a disaster the rotation was this year. I think that is an area to spend a little bit of money. Well, and they need starting pitching options, period. Like They really need to try to accumulate guys who can start games for them this coming season and not be in the position they were in. It felt like so often this past season where you were like, who's going to start for them on Thursday? I don't know. Some guy we've never heard of from the minors, you know, like they just even like minor league free agents, they got to try to get their arms around as many possibilities here as the team can. And just, you know, it's that classic thing of you're throwing everything against the wall and just seeing what sticks because, yeah, there obviously is a lot of work to be done. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. I know it's November and I know it's been a lot warmer lately than we're used to in November, but it's going to get cold eventually. We all know that. And Window Nation has a great way to help you stay warm and more comfortable and with incredible savings. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Get yourself some great new Window Nation windows. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90NATION and make sure to tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation windows are the best and now's a great time to get yourself new Window Nation windows if in fact you have been thinking about getting new windows. You could save yourself up to 30% odd heating bills when it finally does get cold and you can increase the value of your home. Window Nation is easy to work with, is very experienced. Window Nation gets the job done right the first time. See what Window Nation can do for you. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90NATION and tell them that Al Galdi sent you and that you want the special deal. Buy two windows, get two windows free on any style of new window from Window Nation, plus pay nothing until 2025. That's windownation.com or 866-90NATION, windownation.com or 866-90NATION, and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. God dang it. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. Tell me what it means to you have your first managerial championship. Well, I just knew it was going to happen sooner or later. You stick around long enough and you got good teams, it's going to happen sooner or later. You know what I mean? And this is, I, I said if I win one, I want to win two. So we might as well go for two. We'll see. So the postseason wrapped up, and uh, it, of course, was a postseason that was filled with familiar names and faces if you're a Nationals fan. Dusty got his World Series title as a manager. It was very nice to see that. I mean, it was 
it's so funny, you know, going through Twitter Saturday night, Sunday morning, how many versions of congrats to Dusty, I feel great for Dusty there were. And that was a cool thing to see. I mean, nobody ever had anything really against Dusty other than some managerial decisions in October. But to see him get his first World Series championship as a manager so many years after being a manager, multiple years after it looked like he may be done as a manager, and that he gets the championship with maybe the single most analytically inclined organization in baseball is just hysterical. I mean, this is like the baseball gods laughing at all of us, but great to see that with Dusty Baker. There definitely are some lessons for the Nats from this postseason, but man, you know, it was hard to watch at times because of all these, you know, former Nats involved and, you know, obviously knowing that the Nats are so far away from this, but this was a really good and compelling postseason. Like there was a lot of good baseball on display these last few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Count me among those that wasn't thrilled about the idea of the expanded postseason and all the extra games early on. Those early round games were fantastic. There was a lot of drama in that. You had some surprise teams get through. And then you get to the World Series. And that was, I think, an outstanding series. Every game in there was compelling in some way and for very different reasons. You had a no-hitter in the World Series for the first time since Don Larson. I know it was a combined no-hitter, not the same thing, but it was still pretty amazing. You had the Phillies the night before launching five home runs. You had a wild back and forth game. You had these big swings of emotion along the way on both sides, some dramatic home runs. What Jordan Alvarez did in game six, phenomenal. And then at the center of it all, you had Dusty Baker. And I agree with you. It's so amazing to see from every corner of the baseball universe, the people out there who were thrilled for him. I'm going to count myself among those, having gotten to cover him for two years. And it's just a reminder of what a remarkable baseball life this man has lived for 50 years, more than 50 years since he debuted with the Atlanta Braves as Hank Aaron's teammate. The number of people he has come across, the significant moments he's been a part of, both good and bad, the number of people he's touched across baseball is maybe second to none, to be honest. You know, I knew that he was going to be the oldest manager ever to win a World Series. I did not realize till it was over. He's the oldest manager or coach ever to win a World Series, Super Bowl, NBA Finals, or Stanley Cup at 73 years old. That is a remarkable thing. And like you said, the number of times along the way that you probably thought to yourself, well, that was it. That was his last chance. He's never going to get to go back again. And he did. And so there are so many people around the sport that are thrilled for him. You can hate the Astros. You cannot be happy at all that the Astros won it again. That's fine. I get that 100%. But I feel like if you've paid any attention at all to Dusty Baker's career, you have to be thrilled for him. He just punched his ticket to Cooperstown. I think he maybe would have gotten in anyways, but there's nothing left on the resume now to deny him his place in Cooperstown someday. I was going to say, I think the argument was already there for him to be a Hall of Fame manager. But yeah, you would think that it's now certified that he's going to end up making his way into that. So, you know, it was funny to me. And I have to say it was comical to me because you noticed throughout the various stages of the postseason, all of the observations from people in this area, fans and media of, you know, well, there's Bryce Harper and there's Juan Soto and there's Max Scherzer and there's Kyle Schwarber and there's Dusty Baker. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily like a woe is us thing, but it was just more kind of like, hey, all these guys used to be here and now they're no longer here. And I find it very fitting and very appropriate 
that the Astros won this World Series. I have talked about this on my podcast. I know that you're in the process of writing this. And I think it is, you know, I just mentioned the baseball gods. From a Nationals perspective, I think there is a very clear lesson from this postseason from the baseball gods. And the lesson isn't, oh, if only the Nats had kept all of these guys. I think the lesson is, why is it that the team that the Nats beat in the World Series in 2019 is still so good and has made multiple World Series since then when that team, like the Nats, has lost multiple key players from 2019. Whether you're talking about Garrett Cole or Zach Granke or George Springer or Carlos Correa. And of course, the answer is the Astros have adequately replaced those guys to where the Nats have not adequately replaced their guys. The problem for the Nats, the number one problem isn't who they have lost, it's who they have replaced those who the team has lost with. And that the Astros won the World Series, I feel like crystallizes this in so many ways. And so I know that there was this hyper focus on, you know, especially Bryce Harper. And, you know, there was almost this like retroactive lament because very few people were screaming for the Nats to re-sign Bryce in that 2018-2019 offseason. And yet now all of a sudden everyone's asking, how come we didn't keep Bryce Harper? That's not the point of all of this. It's how you replace guys. It's how you draft and develop. And whatever you think about the Astros, They are on quite a run here these last five, six years, and they've done a great job of replacing the departed players for them. And I think that more than anything is why the Astros won the World Series. Yeah, this is exactly the column that I had published on Monday morning on MassInSports.com. So anybody who hasn't read it, I encourage you to go read that. It's exactly what we're talking about here. Real quick, the irony of what you just said about Bryce Harper is that he's the one guy the Nationals did adequately replace because they had this kid named Juan Soto ready to step in and take his spot. It's all the others that they did not adequately replace. So I get it. It's hard to see Bryce Harper go to the World Series and you know, a couple things go differently. He's the MVP of the World Series for the Phillies. But I don't think that actually he's the one that you should be lamenting, nor, like you said, I get it. You wish they could have retained at least some of their homegrown stars. But I think we tended to forget that the Astros had plenty of losses themselves. The team that the Nationals beat in Houston in 2019 had Carlos Correa at shortstop. It had George Springer in right field. It had Garrett Cole on the mound. None of those guys are around. They all became free agents. They all left. They got better deals elsewhere. How did the Astros sustain success? They replaced all three with key players who helped them win this next World Series. You had Jeremy Pena. He's a third round pick in 2018. He was their shortstop. He won a gold glove, ALCS MVP, World Series MVP. Kyle Tucker, first round pick in 2015. He replaced Springer in right field. He hit 30 homers back-to-back years. He's made the all-star team. He's won a gold glove. He hit two home runs in the World Series. And then Framber Valdez signed out of the Dominican Republic in 2015. Ostensibly, he replaced Garrett Cole in the rotation. He had Cy Young votes in 2020. He made the all-star team, led the league in innings pitched this year, and then he gave up only two earned runs in three starts in the ALCS and the World Series and arguably could have been the World Series MVP himself. That's how you do it. Now, yes, the Astros retained a few of their prominent star players, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, who is a Scott Boris client, Jordan Alvarez, Lance McCullers. None of those were massive million deals like the Nationals had with their stars. The lesson here is, yes, you do your best to retain whoever you can, but you have to be able to constantly 
feed that pipeline again with more homegrown players. The Nationals, and we can run through this if you want, over the last decade have been abysmal at drafting and developing not just star players, just actual major leaguers. They have been awful at it. They have been. And the okie doke, the sort of trick of hand of look over here while this other thing is happening over there is, well, we couldn't keep all these guys. That's not the reason. It drives me crazy now when I'll hear people, especially people in the media, harp on that. That's not why the Nats are where they are. The bad drafting, the bad player development is why the Nats are where they are. And until that gets fixed, nothing's going to change, not appreciably and not sustainably. You know, you might luck into a good season here or there, but if you don't draft and develop well, you can't be good for any sustained period of time. It really is as simple as that. And, you know, you go back to the trading away of Juan Soto, you know, the more I kind of look back on that, the more it really does feel like the reason the Nats turned, did a 180 on this Soto thing and went from telling anyone who would listen how much they wanted to re-sign him to then trading him this past July was their farm system was a mess. And they saw as this past season was going on how bad things were. And there was a desperation, you know, like a dire need of, we got to inject some prospects into this thing. And here's a guy who can maybe help be a get out of jail free card. And so let's go ahead and fire that bullet, even though it was an especially painful bullet to fire. But if the farm system was in better shape, I still think that Juan Soto might be here with the Nats. So it's like there's that domino effect of not only the bad drafting and player development has led to you being bad, but it ended up compelling you to do something like trade Juan Soto when maybe you could have waited, I don't know, six months for new ownership to take over and then maybe try to resign the guy. You know, I mean, So like there's that aspect of things as well. Yeah, I think we remember at the time we said, well, why are you doing this now? There's no urgency to have to do this. You can wait it out. And I think the reason they did it at the time, Mike Rizzo would say, is that he felt like the only way for them to get to where they needed to go was to acquire minor league talent because they had not done it on their own, developing and drafting their own. And if you have to acquire it, You better sell your very best piece at his point of maximum value, which is what he did. And he got five prospects when you included Josh Bell in the trade as well. And he felt like he was never going to get that same deal if he waited it out. We can argue whether that was the right move or not, but that was the reason. So philosophically, it was an acknowledgement, even though he didn't come out and say it publicly, it was an acknowledgement from Rizzo that they had done such a poor job of drafting and developing their own talent that he felt compelled to trade away an iconic superstar with two and a half years left of service time because that was the only way in his mind to rebuild a farm system. We'll see over time how that works out. But they didn't do it just because Juan Soto wouldn't take the contract they were offering. If they had done their job as an organization over the last decade, they're not in that position, don't need to do it. No. And I think that's a key thing to remember. It's not as simple as Juan Soto's agent is Scott Boris. Ergo, Juan was never going to sign a long-term contract extension here. There's a lot more to it than that. And the Nats' bad drafting and player development was a big part of that. few other things from the postseason. So we talked so much this past season about how bad the Nats were at hitting home runs. The Nats finished dead last in the National League in home runs for the 2022 regular season, 136 home runs over 162 games. Know this about the 2022 MLB postseason. Teams that out-homered opponents went 22-6 and 
the previous postseason, 2021, teams that out-homered opponents went 25-2. So 47-8 and eight over the last two MLB postseason are teams that out-homer opponents. Just to show you the value of the home run, in this past postseason, the 2022 postseason, 46.8% of all runs scored were via home runs. This is why we harp on this so much. It sounds great and romantic to talk about, you know, being a great contact hitting team. And there is value in that. I don't want to be dismissive of that. But the home run matters more. There's a reason that this launch angle thing has become such a thing. And, you know, especially watching this postseason and seeing, you know, what teams like the Astros and Phillies can do. Boy, if you can't hit home runs with any kind of frequency, as the Nats could not hit home runs with any kind of frequency this season, it's so hard to win. And conversely, if you can hit homers, if you can mash, you put yourself in a great spot. It is the great cleaner upper of other problems. It is the great masker of deficiencies. And boy, I thought that this postseason really highlighted that, the value of the home run. It did, but I'm going to push back a little bit on this. And here's why. With the Phillies in particular. Yes, when they hit homers, they were phenomenal. They were unstoppable. And through basically, what, three and a half rounds of the postseason, that's exactly what they did. And then they lost it and they had no way to score runs in those final games of the World Series. After the big five homer game, they get no hit. They basically get shut down the rest of the way. Home runs are great, but you can't be all or nothing. They, I think, relied on it too much. They did not have the ability to score runs in other ways. If you can hit homers every single night, fantastic. That's a great way to win. But if that's the only way you can score runs, you are susceptible to what they were, and that was they struck out the most times in World Series history. They hit a bunch of home runs, but they went stone cold silent, essentially, over the last few games. Now, the Astros pitching was phenomenal, so credit to them for that. But I do think that was a little something of a takeaway there from the Phillies. Of And we kind of thought that all year long with them. And the reason that maybe they were so erratic, and at times they looked great, and at times they looked like they weren't even going to make the postseason. They hit a lot of home runs. They also strike out a ton, and they go into slumps. And so I think you have to have the ability to score runs in other ways if the home run is not there for you on a given night. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not an either-or thing, right? It's not you can only be good at home runs and be good at nothing else. Like, ideally, you've got some Adam Dunn in you. You hit home runs, you also can draw a bunch of walks, you know, and so you can at least get on base when you're not hitting home runs. I just think it's like, you know, an NBA team that doesn't make threes, an NFL team that doesn't generate explosive plays. Like, with the way that the sport is played now, to try to win without the home run, it's like trying to win in the NBA with nothing but mid-range jumpers. It's trying to win in the NFL, you know, with a dominant running game and a dominant defense. Like, look, it can work and more power to you if you can win that way. But man, that really is an uphill climb. And I thought some of those numbers on homers stood out. The other thing is this, and you know, you can frame this however you like, but what does it say about the value and meaning of the regular season that the third place team in the National League ended up winning the National League pennant and the not one, not two, but three 100 win teams in the National League didn't even make the NLCS. I mean, you had three 100 win teams in the National League in the regular season in the New York Mets, the Atlanta Braves, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Not a single one made the NLCS, never mind winning the NL pennant. And then the Phillies, who, you know, were okay, were fine during the regular season, you know, nobody was like overwhelmed by them in the regular season. The third place Phillies ended up winning the pennant and, you know, came fairly close anyway to winning 
the World Series. Now, you could say, hey, that makes the postseason exciting and unpredictable, and it does. But boy, you play 162 games. In theory, you're identifying the best teams, and, and it all ends up meaning very little come October. It really is just get in to the MLB postseason, and then anything can happen. Look, we saw it with the Nats in 2019, but boy, did we see it, I thought, with the Phillies this year. Yeah, I think even more so because the 2019 Nats, and I know it was easy to look at that and say, oh, they just got hot right at the end and went on this incredible run. They did, but from May 24th on, they were the best team in baseball. So the slow start, the 19 and 31, I think clouded their overall record. The Phillies, on the other hand, I mean, I remember they came to DC the last week of the season and they were like a couple losses away from thinking they weren't going to make it at all. They looked like a disaster. So what they did, they flipped a switch. And that's kind of the team that they were because of the home run ability. All of a sudden, their bullpen, which had been such a, a sore spot for them all year, got great until those last few games when it caught up to them finally. So that was definitely the argument against the expanded playoffs. And that's the kind of thing that I don't love about it. I do think the regular season should matter. Everybody hoped that the new format was going to reward division winners by you know giving them this home field advantage and they wouldn't have to play that first round. And at least in the National League, that meant nothing in the end. Now, in the American League, the best team, the Astros, did come out on top and they faced the Yankees. So, I mean, those were the number two, the top two seeds. That one played more to form. The National League did not at all. It's funny, it feels like so long ago that we were talking about the Dodgers and the Mets and the Braves. They've been out for so long. I would like to think there's a middle ground there somewhere. They're not going to de-expand the playoffs. That doesn't happen. Once you've expanded, you're set. That's the way it's going to be. Maybe they try to find some other ways to give some more incentives, some advantages to the teams with the better records, the division winners. But in a way, I was kind of discouraged by that. I'm all for a Cinderella story. That's fun every once in a while. But I do think in this sport, the regular season should matter. This felt, at least on the National League side, more like the Stanley Cup playoffs, where it almost doesn't matter. You just have to get in and anybody one through eight can win it. It did. And, you know, it's the first year of the expanded playoffs. So I would in no way advocate for changing it. Like, let's see it happen over the course of a while here. But yeah, I mean, the Phillies won 87 games in the regular season. San Diego won 89 games in the regular season. You had a battle of two 80-win teams in the NLCS. Say what you want about the 2019 Nats. They did win 93 games that regular season. It's not like you feel like that season was appreciably cheapened by the fact that the Nats won the World Series. I don't know that it's fair to say that the season would have been cheapened by the Phillies winning the World Series, but I don't know. I mean, you play this marathon of a regular season, right? A six-month, 162-game grind, and then your three 100-win teams in one league end up not even making your final four. Like, that just doesn't seem the way that things should work out. But again, if you're into unpredictability, then you say, hey, that's the fun of the MLB postseason. So you can view it uh, however you like. And you know what? If you win that many games and you want to make it to the World Series, here's what you can do. Win the postseason games. The Astros and the Yankees found a way to do it in the early rounds. The Dodgers, the Mets, the Braves did not. So go win some games. If you are a better team, prove it on the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. That's Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. If you have a moment and have never rated the podcast, please consider doing that. We appreciate five-star ratings. You can rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You also, on Apple Podcasts, can write a brief review of the podcast saying that you like the podcast, the ratings, and the reviews help us out a lot. You can follow Nats Chat on Instagram at Nats Chat Podcast 
on Instagram. And you can always get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. So we will be with you sporadically throughout the offseason as news warrants, as developments warrant. Maybe the next time we speak, the Nats will have new ownership, Mark, or maybe we'll still be waiting on new ownership. Uh, We shall see. Maybe the commanders will have a new owner by then. They could. Uncle Jeff and Uncle Jay-Z, they seem awfully interested. Jeff Bezos and Jay-Z, we'll see what happens there. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. We appreciate everyone so much, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. As the Nationals are a strike away from franchise history and some World Series history, as Hudson tries to close it out, it'll be another 3-2 pitch to Michael Brantley. Hudson sets. The kick, and here it comes. Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books! The celebration is on! The Washington Nationals are the world champions! Remember where you are, so you remember where you are right now at 11.50 Eastern Time. Remember where you are on October 30th, 2019, when the Washington Nationals finished the fight from the depths of a forgettable 19-31 start. They have climbed to the top of baseball's highest peak, giving us all a finish to a season we will remember for the rest of our lives. The Nationals celebrate just behind the pitcher's mound. A world championship, Curly W is in the books. The Nationals down to nothing, six unanswered runs. They beat the Astros six to two. They are the world champions of baseball. Unbelievable. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.